It's good to be in church this morning. It's good hearing you greet each other too. It's good to have a good church, good church family, people that you're surrounded with that you actually like talking to. I've been in churches that there are people around me that I would not want to knuckle bump them. I'm like, I don't, I don't know who you are. Those churches are all in Arkansas, but that's a whole different story. I'm sorry, my old pastor was from Arkansas, so I made Arkansas jokes all the time, and so uh, we, we love people from Arkansas, I promise. Hey, we're in a series called Not a Pen Stroke, and in this series, we've been looking at the Old Testament, looking at the law of God that God has for his people and the standard in which he has for us to live by. Now, if you were here last week, we started kind of breaking this down, and we'll recap for you here in a moment, but let's just get something out of the way right from the beginning. When we say the law of God, that, that, that just sounds harsh. It sounds restrictive. No one likes a lot of rules. No one likes a lot of laws that we have to follow. It sounds restrictive. It sounds exclusive, and that just doesn't sound fun. However, what we have to understand before we ever jump into this message today is that Jesus clearly said that he came to fulfill the law and not one pen stroke of the Old Testament law was going to be removed or voided. And what this shows us is that Jesus was encouraging us to study the Old Testament law. Now, why did Jesus take such a strong stand in the Old Testament law? Because within the Old Testament law, we find our operating procedure. We see how God designed us to live, how we should get along with one another so that we can flourish and be fruitful. God wasn't trying to be restrictive in his law. He was trying to free us from our own mistakes so that we can live a fruitful life that glorifies him. How many of you are pretty prone to making mistakes or sinning? I know I am. Let me give you an example of what this is kind of talking about when we start breaking down this idea of Old Testament law. Um, I have been pretty blessed in my life. I have never received a speeding ticket. Come on. I've been blessed. How many of you have never had a ticket in your whole life? All right, there's a few of us. How many of you have had more than four tickets? Okay, we might. Okay, how many of you have had, now I'm curious, how many of you have had more than six? Good Lord. You're financing our budget in the state of Oklahoma. All right, just like more than 10? More than 10. Uh-oh, it's between Jake and Lecky. 12? Jake's still got his hands up. <laughs> All right, I can't count much over 12 because I was homeschooled, so that's where I'm going to stop at. <laughs> Anyways, I've never gotten a speeding ticket. The Lord has been gracious. He's shown me favor. Charity, however, not so much. Charity has, must have some sin somewhere in her life that she needs to repent of because every time Charity turns around, she gets a speeding ticket. I kid you not, when we were in college, Charity got two tickets north of $200 in one week. Yes, she was poor. She couldn't afford that. <laughs> Somehow, she drove a Chevy Cavalier, and if you know anything about Cavaliers, these things are dogs. I mean, your lawnmower probably goes faster than a Chevy Cavalier. But somehow, Charity got this thing up to 90 miles an hour, not once, but twice, and both times a state trooper passed her. And of course, she got you know quite a ticket in the great state of Kansas. Let me tell you how unblessed Charity is. She was nine months pregnant and still got a ticket in Vertigris. I mean, who? Nine months pregnant. I mean, she barely squeezed in the Cavalier at this point, and he still gave her a ticket. Now, that's no favor right there. She's shaking her head. You were pregnant. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, she rolled through a stop sign. She wanted me to tell you that. Now, listen. <laughs> I, I have been blessed not to have a ticket. There's favor. I should have had tickets, but I've been blessed. 
Most of us hate receiving traffic tickets, but we understand that the law is there to protect us from ourselves. We understand that going 100 miles an hour down the road is not a safe practice to have. We understand that running through red lights is not good. Therefore, the laws are there to protect us from ourselves and to protect other people from us. And that's exactly what our text is going to show us this morning from Scripture, is that God has placed these laws in our life to teach us how to operate because that's how he created us to live. And when we live that way, we're being fruitful, and we're also avoiding the things that are going to hurt us, and we're also avoiding lifestyles that are going to hurt other people. Now, before we get into that text, let me give you some foundational groundwork in case you were not here last week. Uh, If you were here, we started looking in Exodus chapter number 20, where we get the Ten Commandments. The Israelites are God's chosen people. He has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He has led them into the wilderness. He descends onto Mount Sinai, and he begins to speak to the people from a cloud. And he starts to give them the Ten Commandments, the, the very basis of all the other law, the basis for how we are to relate to God and to our neighbor. Now, today, we're going to continue on in Scripture in the very next chapter in Exodus 21, if you want to begin to turn there. And these are going to be more practical instructions on how we are to live with our neighbors in close proximity. And here's the big idea that I want you to see from all this scripture we're about to read. We reflect the nature of God when we live according to his laws. What you're going to see through our verses is that God has given us some principles for how we are to interact with one another. And there's nothing that glorifies God more when we love him and we love other people. There's nothing that glorifies God more when we have right relation with him and right relationship to one another. Therefore, God gives us some practical applications of how to flesh these commands out. So if you want, turn with me to Exodus chapter number one. And I want to start with our very first point that I want to give you today. We reflect the nature of God when we are responsible. We reflect the nature of God when we are responsible. Exodus chapter number 21, verses 12 says this, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But he, if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, when I, I will appoint a place for which he may flee. But if a man willfully tax another to kill him by coming, he shall surely be put to death. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father and his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, the man that does not die but takes his bed, then if he, the man, rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hands, he shall be avenged. But if his slave survives a day or two, he shall not be avenged, for the slave is his money. When a man strives together, and he hits a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall oppose on him. He shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is no harm, then you shall pay life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go because of his eye. If he knocks it out, the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. 
When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall be not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned and has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, he shall give for the redemption of life whatever is opposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with accordingly to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Okay, now this is quite a lot going on in this passage. A lot of weird rules, a lot of weird regulations, things that we're not really familiar with. So what is the principle that the scripture is getting to? The principle is this, that God expects his children to take responsibility for their actions. And they are solely responsible for their actions. Let's be honest, we live in a day and an age and a culture that likes to deflect responsibility. None of us like to own up for the sins or the mistakes that we made because we know there are consequences to those sins or mistakes. And it seems like every generation that comes into the earth, the more likely we are to want to push away our responsibility. It seems like people used to be more willing to take ownership of their mistakes. I remember a story that my grandfather used to tell me, and it explains a lot about my family. He said that when he was a kid, that they lived in Colorado, and there wasn't a whole lot to do for them. And so, I kid you not, he swears by everything uh, from heaven above to earth below that this is what happened, that they found a shotgun and some machetes, and they decided to play cowboys and Indians with the shotgun and the machete. And so, they decided their sister couldn't hit anything, so they gave her the shotgun. And so, they're all running around. She's shooting, can't hit nothing, and their dad came home. And so, of course, dad has all the kids lined up. He's furious. His head's about to blow off his shoulders. And the sister pipes up and says, Dad, if you're going to beat us, then you're going to beat us with this machete. And so he proceeded to whoop every single one of those kids with the edge of the machete. Could you imagine? That's taking responsibility right there. You guys don't believe that story, do you? True story. That's what I was told. Here's the facts. We don't like to deflect responsibility. This is a character flaw found in all people and is rooted and the fall of humanity from their original sin. When Adam and Eve sinned and God showed up, they began to deflect responsibility. God asked Adam, what happened? And he said, Eve made me do it. And he asked Eve, what happened? The snake made me do it. So we are constantly trying to deflect the responsibility because we don't like to be held for the actions that we've done. As brothers and sisters of Christ, though, if we're going to live as a witness that impacts the community, then we have to be people who take our actions serious, and we have to think about the responsibility and the consequences of our actions before we take them. Now, for many believers, any language of blame needs to be removed from their vocabulary. We need to look at, the, at our lifestyle, we need to look at our actions, and we need to take anything that would allow us to place blame somewhere else, and we need to remove that from our mindset. We need to remove that from our vocabulary. I want to zone in on a few laws in particular out of this particular passage as an illustration for how God calls us to take responsibilities. Notice the seriousness that God takes for killing and kidnapping one another. He says, in short, if you take a life through intentional murder, then your life is going to be required of you. If you kidnap someone and sell them into slavery, your life is going to be required of you. In fact, if, you find, if we find you in possession of someone who's been kidnapped, your life is going to be required of you. We are responsible to our actions to one another. Why? Because humanity is created in the image of God, as we talked about last week. And God created every single one of us to reflect his image. 
Therefore, we are not only responsible to our fellow man because it's the right thing to do, but we are responsible to our fellow man because when we are not responsible, we are disregarding our creator and the image of our creator. We're showing disrespect to God when we treat one another poorly. And God takes this personally. We see that in how he speaks. He is demanding us to be responsible and not irrelevant to one another. Now, before we carry on, we need to clarify something that might be confusing out of this passage. And that is the matter of slavery. Our country has a dark history with slavery and its founding and When we read this scripture, we see the word slave come up over and over again, and we get a mental image of someone that was in bondage of slave labor, primarily for their race. Now, we need to understand in the Old Testament, when the scripture is referencing slavery, is not speaking of slavery in the American historical context. Slavery is not what we think of it in the context that the scripture is speaking is more of indentured servitude. This was more of an economical transaction where a person could place themselves in indentured servitude to pay off a debt or to advance their economical status. And so the concept of kidnapping someone was what we just read was against the law of God. And so in our context, when we think of slavery, we think of people being kidnapped against their will, forced into labor. But that was not what was going on here. This was primarily about people paying off their debts or if they were real poor, they could indenture themselves into a master's hand so they could have advancement in their economic system. And so this was really for advancement, not for hindrance. And if you read the entire Old Testament, you'll see this play out. I wish I could dive into the details, but at least for clarity, I just want to highlight a few things that you would read in the Old Testament law in regards to quote unquote slavery. First, kidnapping people uh, to sell them as slaves was punishable by death, as we just read. You will also read that the master was responsible to take care of the people in his, in his labor force. This was not a lifetime of forced labor. Rather, there was a time period on it. Someone could not indenture themselves for more than six years. Slavery was always voluntary in nature, unless the person had a debt that they were paying off. When the terms were over, the the person was not to leave empty-handed. The master was to send the person out of their home with further compensation. And this slavery was never racially based and it was not oppressive. And so this principle that we see here uh, in the scripture, that's what it's speaking to. And so if that ever brings some concern or some confusion to you, that's the clarity. Overall, the principle that we're trying to get to is this. We are responsible to every single person that we meet. As brothers and sisters in Christ, especially as we're living in this community, we have a responsibility to our boss. We have a responsibility to our coworker. We have a responsibility to our employee. We have a responsibility to the person we pass in Walmart, to the banker, to the homeless person, to the lawyer in the office, to the construction worker, and to the doctor, to every single person we come in contact with. We have a responsibility to be kind to that person to bear fruit of the spirit towards that person, to treat that person as though they were created in the image of God. And what this does is it removes all socioeconomical barriers and requires us to watch our actions to each other, no matter who the person is. Additionally, the Bible did not limit this responsibility just to the individual, but we also have responsibility to other people's property. The Bible talks about animals that hurt one another or hurt other people. We are responsible for not only what we do, but we're responsible to take care of other people's possessions. 
This principle shows us that we're not to rip off our neighbor. We're to treat our neighbor fairly in business practices and transactions. What this shows us is, is that life is more valuable than possessions. I treat my neighbor with respect because my neighbor is more valuable to me than what I own. My neighbor is more valuable to me because my neighbor reflects God. My stuff is just stuff that is withering away anyways. This reality should cause and stop us to think about our words, our attitudes, and our actions towards our fellow man. We need to be keenly aware that we are to bear the fruit of the Spirit towards our fellow man, because when we bear the fruits of the Spirit, we're honoring God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all things that give us filters for how we interact with one another. It no longer matters if the person is nice to me or not. I'm going to be kind to them because I have responsibility. It doesn't matter if this is the first time I've met the person. I'm going to be kind to them because I'm responsible for my actions. It doesn't matter if the person is poor or rich. I'm going to treat them the same with love and care and honor because I'm responsible for my actions. If there's someone who models this in scripture so well and teaches us the principle of this, it would really be Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is found in Luke chapter number 19. And if you're not familiar with his story, he was a, he was a tax collector, which meant that he really robbed people in the name of the Roman government. And, and how that worked was they were to, he was to take taxes from the individuals and send them off to Rome, but they were notorious for taking more than what was required and padding their own pockets with it. And so Zacchaeus was a tax collector who, who the Bible says was a man of short stature. He couldn't see over the crowds. And so as Jesus was coming, Zacchaeus ran ahead because he wanted to see Jesus. He climbs into a tree and Jesus is passing by. He looks up and he sees Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must eat at your house tonight. And so Zacchaeus holds this dinner feast for Jesus and his disciples. And there's all these other tax collectors and people there. And Zacchaeus stands up and he proclaims, he says, I'm going to return everything that I've ever robbed to somebody and I want to pay them interest on top of it. What happened in this moment? Zacchaeus encountered Jesus Christ, he experienced the gospel, and it made him realize that he was responsible for his actions. And his desire of his heart was to, was to repay what he had stolen. The desire of his heart was to do the best he could to try to deal with his neighbor properly and return to them what he had taken. What happened in this moment is that the Holy Spirit illuminated Zacchaeus' heart. And it changed how he interacted with his neighbor. And he started taking responsibility for those interactions. And we as believers need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, living in such a way that we are aware and we're responsible for how we interact with our neighbors. Church, we need to be a light. And right now, when a lot of people are throwing verbal hand grenades, it's an opportunity for us to take this command from Scripture seriously, take responsibility for our actions, and set a precedent and show that God is really among us and that God has changed our hearts. So we reflect the nature of God when we take responsibility. The second thing I want to show you is this. We reflect the nature of God when we are compassionate. Exodus 22, starting in verse number 21 through 28, says this. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless children. 
If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me, and I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of the people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. You shall not rival God, nor curse a ruler of your people. God calls us to reflect his nature by being compassionate. Now, we live in an American culture, and we struggle with compassion for a lot of us because we're individualistic by nature. Compassion doesn't come naturally for many of us. But what God is calling us to do is to look at other people who are worse off than we are and for God to instill compassion into our hearts. I remember uh, my Sunday school teacher the, the person who worked with me when I was a little kid, I had to be probably eight or nine. My family had just started going to church. And she started telling us that when she was a child, she was very poor. And her family didn't have a lot to eat. She had basically to eat for most of their meals. I ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the evening. And she said that one time she remembered her mom coming in after a day of work and they had gotten home from school. And the mom told the children, hey, look, we have our neighbors are coming over. They don't have a lot to eat. And so we're going to feed them. And, and she said, mom, we don't have a lot to eat either. We only have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And she said, yes, dear, but there's always someone that's worse off than, than we are. And we're going to do the best we can to be compassionate toward them. And she said that that moment stuck with her that there was always something she could do for someone else. And as a small child hearing her story, that reminded me and taught me there's always someone that's worse off than I am. No matter how bad situations get, no matter how, how tight the finances get, no matter how bad things in life look, there tends to be someone who has a worse story than ours. There's someone who tends to be in a worse predicament than we find ourselves in. And this is exactly what God is speaking to. He's basically saying, look, you need to look around and there are people that you need to be compassionate to. There are people that you're going to come in contact with that you need to treat well, because if you don't, I'm going to hear their cry and I'm going to hold you responsible for the neglect to them. Compassion needs to be the natural instinct of the child of God. Now, what I find interesting is, is that it is my observation that most small children are naturally compassionate. If you are raising children and they're, they're small under the age of, let's say, eight or nine, they tend to notice other people's concerns and, and they want to meet those needs. That's been my observation, even in my own home. Uh, this year, God seems to be doing something on Knox's heart. He, he wants to be very compassionate. Uh, he, we're working on him on saving money. He, he has an allowance and we're trying to teach him to be a good steward with the money that comes his way. And this Christmas, he, he was very motivated to want to bless other people. He, he had this desire to, to, to give to other people through the money that he had acquired. In fact, we had to almost rein that in a little bit. It was, it was a good thing, but he wanted to give everything away, and we were trying to teach him how to properly navigate that. And he, he came home, he said, I want to give my teacher $100. And we're like, $100? Why? Because she's the best teacher ever. And I thought, what about your dad? Give your dad $100. I'm not. <laughs> but that was naturally in him. But what I know is as he gets older, 
if he goes like the rest of us, most of the time we tend to lose some of that natural compassion that's in our hearts. And so we need to ask God to make our hearts tender again to the needs of other people. God is calling us to rise above self-centeredness. He's calling us to rise above the callousness of hearts that a lot of us get from a callous world. And he's calling us to have compassion on the underprivileged. God says that we are to look at the foreigner trying to start their new life. We need to look at the fatherless and the widow and the poor. These people are working as hard as they can. And you and I are called to show them compassion. God basically says, if you mistreat them, then you are going to answer to me. And those are scary words from coming from an almighty God. We need to understand the nature of God. God is strong and mighty, and his nature is always to run to the weak and to the helpless. Mainly you and I, we were weak and helpless in our sins. We needed someone who was strong and mighty to rescue us, and God responded to our need and rushed in and saved us from our sins. And now God is calling us to reflect that nature of compassion towards other people. God is so serious about this command. He said that if you fail to do this, judgment is going to come upon you, perhaps even to the point that you die by the sword. God was serious. When we fail to be compassionate to the underprivileged, then we are mocking a God who showed us mercy when we were underprivileged. We were the fatherless that God adopted into his family through the blood of Jesus Christ. We were the widowed that Jesus became our groom to so that we could spend eternity in heaven. We were the stranger that God welcomed in and provided for all of our needs. And now he's saying, I want you to go do likewise. In Psalm 68, verse 4 and 5, it says this, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. Father to the fatherless, protector to the widows, is God in his holy habitation. From time to time, I'm asked to speak in different public venues or whatever to a group of people who I don't know and who don't know me. And so it's customary in those moments that when you're standing before a group of people that you don't know, you give a little bit of an introduction to who you are so you can build a rapport to them. Hi, I'm Austin. I'm pastor at JFA. I have a wife. I have a son. You know, we've lived here a year and a half, blah, blah, blah. You, you do that to build a rapport with people. You identify yourself to them. When God introduces himself to us in this verse, he said he was the father to the fatherless and protector to the widow. That's powerful. God identified with the underprivileged among us. Of all of the ways that God could have introduced himself in this verse, he chose to introduce himself as a father to the fatherless and a provider for the widows. Wow, that's powerful. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Being compassionate reflects the nature of God as his children. We believe as a church that this is not something that should be avoided. This is a practical commandment that God gives us. And so the question is, practically, how do we live this out? Well, we just need to look at how God treated us. Notice that God is not giving us a handout, but he is helping us up. When we were in bondage, he took the fall for our sins and then raised us up in dignity and honor. 
And we as a children to an almighty God have to look at those around us and we have to help raise them up so they can experience salvation before God and they can have dignity and success. We help position people for success. That's what we're called to do. Therefore, every situation has a different outcome. But perhaps you and your family start looking around saying, how can we show compassion to those around us? Perhaps you find a neighbor in your, in your, in your uh, neighborhood who's a widow, and you commit to checking on her and meeting her needs. Perhaps you and your family get into foster care to take care of the orphans. Perhaps you have the means uh, to employ people, and so you find people are down on their luck. You pay them well as they work hard, and you help them come to a new, new economical level. Perhaps you have the means to invest in someone education or business venture, and they and you help invest in proper equipment or whatever they need in order to be successful. Perhaps you volunteer at a nonprofit in the area. There's a lot of different ways in which you can show compassion and reflect the nature of God. The person I think in scripture who teaches us this the best is perhaps a man by the name of Boaz. You can find him in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a widow. Her mother-in-law is a widow. They are poor. They don't have anything to work with. And in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible, and the scriptures, what it told the landowners is that when they went to harvest, they were to leave the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor in the area could come and pick their own grain so that they could have something to eat. Ruth and Naomi were so poor that Ruth had to go glean from the edges of the fields. And as she's gleaning, Boaz takes notice of her and he Find out who she is. And what's really interesting is that Boaz didn't just run in and stop her from working, but yet he positioned things around her so she could be successful. He told, he told his workers, leave her alone so that she can be successful. He told them, hey, give her a little bit extra at the end of the day. He did all these things so that she could be successful. And what ended up happening in the long term is that they ended up getting married, and it completely changed her family dynamic. But it's a good principle for us. Who's around us that we can be compassionate to? Who's around us that we can show dignity and honor to by helping lift them up in their situation and helping provide for their needs? When we do that, we're reflecting God's nature towards us. And if we're ever in question how we do this, just look and say, God, how have you treated me? And now I'm going to go treat someone else the same way. So first, we see that we reflect the nature of God when we're responsible. Second, we see that we reflect the nature of God when we're compassionate. And third, we reflect the nature of God when we simply do the right thing at the right time. Exodus chapter number 22, starting verse number 31, says this, You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by the beasts in the fields. You shall, not, you shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring him back to him. If you see a donkey to one who hates you lying down under a burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert justice due to your poor in his gate lawsuit. Keep far from the false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. 
And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know in the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Have you ever been going along, you saw something that you should do, but you're really busy and you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. And you felt convicted and you stopped anyways. Like you're running late to work and you see somebody with a flat tire at the side of the road. And you're like, man, I'm really late to work. I don't have time to stop. But you have that little small steel voice inside of your heart saying, I should really pull over and help them. Have you ever been there? It's exactly what this verse is saying. He's saying, when you see the right thing to do, you need to do it. He said, you see your neighbor's, if your neighbor's ox or his donkey is, gone out and it's gotten loose, you need to stop and you need to help lead it back to its owner. He said, hey, if you see somebody who has, has an oxen and it's fallen underneath its burden, meaning it's, it's overloaded, then you need to stop and you need to help them up, even if the guy hates you. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. And I'm telling you, you need to do the right thing. And there are countless opportunities throughout life for us to practice doing the right thing. And what God is expecting of us as his children is to do the right thing at the right time. Well, what's the right thing to do? Well, you know. You know. You'll sit there and you'll see situations. You're like, this is the right thing to do. You see someone who's struggling paying um, maybe their extra bills at the, at the grocery counter line, and you see that they're digging through their wall looking for an extra 2 or $3, and maybe you have 2 or $3. The right thing to do is to finish paying for it. Maybe you see someone pulled over on the side of the road trying to change their tire, and you can tell that they need some help. You need to pull over and you need to help. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. And when you do the right thing, you're reflecting God. These things are not difficult to recognize. They're never difficult to recognize. The difficulty comes to living them out because doing the right thing always ends up costing us something and it's always inconvenient to us. Verse 31 is the key. It says you're to be set apart. You're to be consecrated. You're to be holy people. When Jesus saved us through our faith, we are to be set apart. We're to be different from other people. Jesus' example, the Good Samaritan, is a perfect illustration of this. He talked about how a, a man fell into a robber's hands and he's left half dead. He said a priest came by, saw him, and kept going on. A Levite came by, saw him, and kept going on. It was a Samaritan who came by, saw him in his knee, got off of his own animal, took care of the man, put, put, doctored up his wounds the best he can, put him back on his donkey and led him to town, put him up in a hotel for a couple days and said, if there's anything else he needs, I'll take care of it. What did that man do? He did the right thing at the right time. And that's what we're called to do as believers, to do the right thing. When we do these things, we are reflecting the nature of God, and we're living the way that we're called to. I want to close with this, if the worship team wants to come back. How we treat people, even our enemies, matters. It's the ultimate sign of our witness. If the people of JFA all moved next month, and this church was to shut its doors, would the people of this community feel the impact? If you were to move out of your neighborhood, would your neighbors know it? Would they feel the, the absence of your presence? We should be missed in our communities. We should be missed in our neighborhoods. We should be missed in our workplace because we live in such a way that is a contrast to other people. I heard this story one time, and if I've told it, I think I told it on a Wednesday night. If I've told it in here, I apologize, but it really fits with this narrative. You just never know when you live this way, when you're responsible, when you're compassionate, when you're doing the right thing. You never know the outcome, the impact of that. I heard this account of this gentleman who 
had taught all over the United States, and he shared this story. He said 10, 15 years earlier, he was in a supermarket with his buddy. He said to him and some, some friends decided they were going to have dinner together, and, and the wives sent them a text or a phone call and said, hey, I need you to stop by the supermarket, pick up a few things. We, we forgot a few things for the dinner tonight. And so these two gentlemen are at the supermarket. They're picking up a few things. And he said as he was walking through the store that he saw a young man that was close to a checkout line. And he, him and it appeared to be his significant other had a, a small baby. And they were looking at the snacks. And he said, as I walked by that guy, I just felt a prompting in my spirit to give him a $100 bill. And he said, I looked, I had a $100 bill. And so he said, I turned around, I walked up to this. He said he was a kid. He said he was probably 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. And he said, I gave him the $100 bill and said, I want you to know Jesus loves you. He said, I put it in his hand, turned around, walked off, paid for our stuff and out the door we went, never thought anything else of it. He said several years later, he said that he was teaching at this Bible college. And he said he gives his lecture. It was to all the student body and it was over. They, they were leaving the building and he said that as everyone else left, he caught an eye of this one particular young man in the back. And he said the young man wasn't moving. He wasn't leaving. And so when everybody else was gone, this young man came up to him and said, sir, you probably don't remember me, but several years ago, I was in a supermarket and you gave a kid $100. He said, that kid was me. He said, that was my girlfriend. We were incredibly poor in life. It just thrown us a hundred different curveballs. We had given up hope. We were incredibly depressed and we decided that we were going to go to a bridge and we were going to jump off that bridge together with our baby and we were going to kill our whole family at once. We had given up hope and he said as we were walking to the bridge the baby started crying because the baby was hungry and so we were able to scrounge up a few loose pennies and some change and he said we were going to go in there to try to buy powdered sugar donuts and some milk so the baby didn't have to die on an empty stomach and then you gave us that hundred dollars and said Jesus care for us. So we found a church, we gave our life to Jesus. He called me to preach, changed my life. And I'm here today because you were obedient. Listen, these things that we talk about sound so simple. Be responsible, be compassionate, do the right thing at the right time. And it almost sounds restrictive sometimes, like God, do you really have to tell me not to kill my neighbor? I mean, do you really have to tell me not to kidnap people? But here's what we have to understand is that God has a purpose in everything he tells us to do. And when we're obedient to his commands, we live by his operating procedure for our life. We reflect his nature. Law sounds restrictive. But if anything, these examples from scripture, that example I just gave you, shows us this, that when we live this way, it won't only change our life, but it'll change everyone around us. Sometimes the most seemingly insignificant things you will do in life will have the greatest spiritual impact. I mean, let's be honest. $100 is quite a bit of money. But for most of us, if we gave $100 away, we might fill it for a week or two, maybe even a month, but we will not remember that $100 in 10 years. I promise you that that young man will never forget the day that $100 hit his palm. Why? Because some man walking through a grocery store took responsibilities for his actions, had compassion on those kids and did the right thing in that moment. And if we will go and do likewise, we'll do the same thing in our homes, we do the same thing in our workplace, at our kids' ball games, in the community, wherever we set our foot, I promise that we will make a difference.